over a decade of uninterrupted growth and low interest rates. So people have short memories, they forget. These companies are realizing you really can't cut your way to prosperity. In the first 100 days, do you really see, do they really walk the walk and, and talk the talk? High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. Some of the leaders in place today, this is the first time they're going through something that is of a significant challenge that's not growth related. Welcome to Disruption Matters, a podcast series produced by PEI Group in partnership with series sponsor Alex Partners that delves into the forces that are reshaping our world and how the private markets can not only address these changes, but emerge stronger from them. This season, we're exploring how GPs can best prepare for massive disruption at each point of the deal cycle. In our first two episodes, we talked about closing deals and the first 100 days. Today, we get into the thick of things and look at how private equity operators can maximize value during the long middle period of the investment cycle. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Rob Kotecki. Chase, do you have any hidden talents? Well, I mean, my mom always told me I was talented. Mm, not what I was asking, but it does bring up a good point. It probably felt great to know that your mom values you, right? Yeah, it really did. And in a lot of ways, her support of my interests really helped me to develop into the person I am today. Shout out, mom. In the same way, business leaders and investors should keep in mind the value of fostering and developing talent within their enterprises. So true, Rob. But of course, while many leaders like to say that their companies are like family, it takes incentives to keep a corporate family together. Without a strong, cohesive team, even the most masterful value creation plans can fall apart. With that in mind, what are some concrete ways that a portfolio company can promote talent development? Ted Belilis, a partner and managing director at Alex Partners, points to three things that portcos can do to ensure they're attracting, retaining, and cultivating their talent pool. The first would be in any portfolio company to make sure that the employee value proposition is made explicit. Why is it advantageous to work for this company over its competitors? So when an employee realizes beyond just receiving a competitive salary that working for this firm versus working for another firm is better because why? What will happen to my career? What will happen to my skill development? What new skills will I develop or not develop, especially for Gen Z and for younger millennials, career development and a more holistic approach to employment and employee value proposition is critical. A second reason is that you know the purpose and values of an organization have always been important. Is the purpose and values of the organization benefiting more than just its investors? Are the employee base really benefiting from that purpose, from those values. Even boomers are concerned with ethical leadership and well-run companies. And then finally, I would call out CEO leadership as a key value creator and driver of portfolio talent development. There just isn't any substitute for the CEO getting behind the concept and value of development and letting employees know that they are as important as customers and as clients. Warren Valdmanis, a partner at Two Sigma Impact, says another thing to consider is fairness. Those three that Ted mentioned plus fairness represent our four pillars of what we think a good job is. 
But I would note that in order to articulate that value proposition, sometimes it helps to listen to employees. And we think that systematically getting feedback from employees about what's important to them is critical if you want to have a great portfolio company that's providing great jobs. And so one of the things that we do in every instance is we survey all of our workers in a very defined way, uh, you know, along those four dimensions of a good job. And we take that feedback very seriously. That's a boardroom conversation that results in actions when appropriate, when we're falling short in certain areas. It helps a lot to listen. And I think sometimes private equity professionals could do more listening. Listening is so important. Are you just saying that because this is a podcast, Rob? Well, I mean, I'm probably biased. But really, part of the reason why it's so important to listen to your talent is that the things people want from their jobs today are, at least in some regard, very different from what employees in the past wanted. The workforce today is extremely different than it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. That's Alan Goldfarb, founder and managing partner of Orangewood Partners. And so coming up with ways to evolve with the markets and, and where we are today and promoting exciting places to work, we think is critical. And finding ways to, to have a sense of a home and a great place to work where it's not just clocking in and clocking out. So, you know, listening to employees and coming up with ways like charitable involvement or other community involvement, oftentimes is, it makes it a lot more exciting and making sure the work-life balance is, you know, really, really focused across the board. Adding to that, Ted Balilis says that listening is just one side of the coin when it comes to engaging with your talent. The other side is providing valuable feedback. High quality feedback is a lever for change and growth. It's also a great way to attract and retain talent. And people in leadership roles really need, you know, to understand how to give feedback. Feedback should be aligned with the firm's values. Again, we're talking a lot about purpose and values. The feedback should be quantitative as well as qualitative. And there should always be development plans in place to be able to track progress. Of course, it's really important to align feedback with compensation as well, because obviously people are going to repeat the behaviors and be motivated for certain things they get rewarded for. This can roll up then into a learning culture where there can be a lot of different kinds of training and coaching and programs going on using feedback as kind of rocket fuel to get people engaged. He also says there's a series of questions employers should be asking themselves to ensure they're appropriately recognizing the value of their employees. Are employees actually rewarded and applauded for taking well thought out risks? Are they encouraged, you know, to kind of figure out what they learned from failures? So you talk about how does talent adapt to this very, very disruptive environment? Are managers really encouraging workers to learn from their failures, and then, of course, rewarding and recognizing people who do that really well. There really is a balancing act that private equity owners need to perfect when it comes to engaging with their portfolio companies. And of course, every firm has their own approach. Sure, some are more hands-on, others prefer to allow their management teams to build their own specific programs to nurture and support their talent. Stephen Maxwell, Senior Vice President of Portfolio Human Capital at Onyx Private Equity, says part of the power of the asset class is the ability to bring together portco management teams to learn from each other across industries. We may bring together all of our industrial or business services leaders for a forum to discuss a particular topic. We may bring together all of the marketing, HR, 
or operations leaders across those sectors to work on other issues where they can develop their skills and proficiencies in their tasks. We leave to the portfolio companies most of the specific design around professional development activities, but we want to give them the ability to leverage the experiences of their peers across the portfolio and, you know, say if it's three CROs from SaaS software businesses, what's your best practices for building out a BDR team? If you're not familiar with those acronyms, CROs are contract research organizations. SaaS means software as a service and BDR is business development representative. What are you doing for lead generation? How are you using KPIs in your data and your sales ops platforms? So we try to leverage the leadership that we have as we recruit really strong executives into those leadership roles. There's something in what Steven said that opens a line of questioning for me. One of the arts of private equity investing is getting that communication flow right. So how do you as a private equity firm drive the changes needed to grow your portco without micromanaging the business below? First of all, I love the question because it, it doesn't get asked often enough and it certainly doesn't get addressed often enough. In our experience in working with dozens of private equity firms, you know, we do a lot of pre-hire assessment. We do a lot of management due diligence work. And even as we're interviewing management teams on behalf of sponsors and investors, we start talking about frequency of contact, frequency of communication. We hear from management teams that they're nervous, that there's going to be too much intrusion. There's going to be too many demands. And we oftentimes actually facilitate a conversation, a light touch conversation that says, you know, email, phone call, preference, weekly, bi-weekly. Of course, the finance function's a little bit different, but we encourage all stakeholders to talk openly and explicitly about the frequency of communication, how they prefer it what they prefer. I think that most investors, most sponsors want their management teams to feel like they're collaborative, that they're there for them. So, you know, common sense always kind of works in their favor. But I really do think that, you know, at least once a year, there should be like a, just a quick review of, you know, how's our level of contact? Is it too much? Is it too little? What about the finance function? I think looking in the mirror on a periodic basis can be really, really helpful to keeping the relationship between the groups really um, healthy. I think we're all acutely aware of the fact that the events of the last three years have materially changed the way we communicate in business. There's also a bit of, because we can meet virtually, let's meet more, which has its pros and cons. That's so true. I think from a glass half full perspective, there are a lot of valuable lessons and practices that were built into the communications playbook. Here's Stephen Maxwell again, recalling the communication culture shock of those early days in the pandemic. You know, suddenly on a Friday, we were scheduling daily Zoom calls to try to understand what to do that following Monday. I remember it was Friday, March 13th. And what was really interesting is we went through those calls. They became very, with the portfolio, all the portfolio company leadership, they became functional calls as well. So we had the CFOs on calls, we had the CHROs, the CEOs. And as we worked through those 18 to 24 months of the pandemic and things got a little bit more normal, we had all of those functional leaders say, we don't want to stop doing these calls. We want to change what we're talking about. But the fact that we've been able to interact with one another has been so hugely beneficial to us 
And it's now become a fabric of how we work with our portfolio company leadership. I run every month a CHRO leadership call. We've built out Microsoft Teams site where they can collaborate with one another and have access to resources. But that actually was a fallout of what we did to respond to COVID. So, you know, occasionally positive things can come out of crises, but it did become an ongoing part of increased communication with the portfolio companies as a result of that. This really speaks to another area of critical importance for private investors, ensuring their leadership teams are resilient to unforeseen changes. Now, of course, this is a podcast series that focuses on the operational side of private equity. So how could we talk about building bi-directional lanes of communication and resilient leadership teams without bringing up the value of a strong operating partner network? Here's Alan Goldfarb. A couple other points that I'd like to bring up on the strategic leadership and portfolio companies that we at Orangewood try to really focus on is uh, two specific things. One, at all of our portfolio companies, we bring our extensive operating partner network, people who've had success, whether industry or functional or certain you know executive level functions at different companies that we've been involved with in the past and oftentimes become board members. And second, we also do is at least once a year, but oftentimes uh, several times a year, we bring in the leadership across the portfolio in one place. We spend a lot of time, we talk about best practices, learnings, things that people can do to help each other. And it's actually amazing when you're together in person, which we've seen when people start to talk, how many ideas, even if it's completely different industries or different sectors, what the overlap is on certain key ideas. And so getting folks together and sharing best practices, we find is really an amazing, amazing way to help with strategic leadership development at at the portfolio companies. Looking at this another way, Ted Belilis gives some advice on how firms can go about building those resilient leadership teams. I think it begins with defining roles really clearly, defining expectations and the outcomes of those key value-creating roles, and then assessing talent and developing that talent to meet those outcomes. So that's all about, first of all, senior leadership as good role models, as walking the talk of purpose and values, risk and innovation in particular, encouraging employees to be learning, to have a growth mindset, to be able to fail, fail fast, even be rewarded for failure. What did you learn from that? And then aligning rewards with those risks that you're encouraging your employees to take and creating that virtuous cycle from role modeling to development and learning to rewards can create a very, very robust, I would submit a very innovative and resilient culture. Another key, says Warren Valdanis, is in having a firm grip on why the business exists in the first place. One of the things that I've learned through now you know, 25 years in and around private equity is that mission and values sets the tone for everything. You know, mission and values is the most distilled form of strategy. Like it's really hard to be crisp on a strategy unless you know why your company exists. But it's also the most distilled form of culture. It's really hard to know what sort of culture your business needs to thrive unless you know why you exist. Uh, unfortunately, mission and values sometimes gets you know a lot of lip service, but not a lot of serious consideration. When you actually really wrestle with the values and mission of your firm, 
it usually takes some time and it usually surfaces uncomfortable disagreements, which is why so many mission statements are bland, which is why there's online mission statement generators. Uh, when you go into a portfolio company and you actually say, you know, truly, well and truly, why does your company exist? And you surface those disagreements, you are now on a very exciting road. If you do it honestly and you do it rigorously, you're on the road to the most distilled form of strategy for your business and the most distilled form of culture for your business. For us, that's where it, you know, it starts and ends. And that applies to you know, us as a private equity business as well. You got to do it for yourself first you know, before you can do it with your portfolio companies. One thing he mentioned that came up frequently in this conversation is the concept of values. And that opens a door to a topic that has, for various reasons, most of them political, become less celebrated in the U.S. of late, ESG. What is ESG's role in talent development and building a leadership culture? And how can private owners implement ESG strategies at the portfolio company where people have different views and priorities with regards to their values and what to focus on? Here's Valdmanis again. So when we think about ESG and when we think about impact, which is sort of like ESG on offense as opposed to just policy, um, when we think about um, ESG and when we think about impact, you know, we think first and foremost about quality jobs. And that's you know, sort of the S side of ESG. That's the social side. You know, we think that the jobs issue, the reason why it's so important to the average American is because that's what underlies inequality. That's what underlies so many of the diseases of despair that we hear so much about. Getting the jobs thing right unlocks so many other things. So not to the exclusion by any means of environmental stuff or other ESG things that matter, but certainly it's an area of focus and we hear that again and again. And here's Ted Belilis again. I would say that leaders can't afford not to look through an ESG lens because ESG can drive attraction, retention, motivation, employee loyalty. It can remind us all you know, about the importance of an inclusive workforce, a sustainable workforce. You know, I think that it's essential really for all the four generations, you know, for different reasons in the workforce and for the need to value people, as we've been saying here as well. So I think that lens, looking through that lens is not something that leaders can afford to miss. Whatever we're calling ESG, it'll remain a core consideration for private market investors and port co-management teams. All of this, of course, is foundational to the next conversation we need to have around thriving in turmoil. Once your people are in place, once your leadership team is poised, it's time to focus on one of the key goals of the private equity model, delivering growth against the odds. Join us as we talk about everything from the top line to the bottom line. And to make sure you hear that conversation as soon as it drops, be sure you're subscribed to Spotlight wherever you get your podcasts or check us out at any of PEI Group's various titles online. I'm Rob Kotecki. And I'm Chase Collum. See you next time.